Join us on the swim monkey. Swim. Swim monkey. Swim monkey. Swim monkey. Welcome, Stories with Sid Cassidy, and that's me. Ira Glass, one of the great American radio personalities of this century, said great stories happen to those who can tell them. I I like to think I can tell a good story or two, so my plan during this tough time is every Monday night to bring you a couple other storytellers. We can dig back into some cool stuff that maybe happened decades ago, maybe weeks ago, but we're looking at an opportunity to kind of have a little bit of relief from all of this tough, tough times. And and I don't want to get into any kind of political. It's tragic what's been going on with our country. So this is an escape for you. This is a chance for you to do something a little bit different tonight, or if you're watching it on replay, because tonight I have two classic, not only storytellers, but unbelievable athletes, people, coaches. I'm going to bring them both in. I have Mr. Frank Keith, longtime coach at Yale University, and before that, longtime coach at Bourbon Swim Club. And as I understand it, Frank, uh, you're you're in Philadelphia right now. So welcome. I've I've been in Philadelphia for the last five months. <laughs> Locked in the house. Good. Stay in the house because what I'm seeing on TV, you don't want to be out. Now <laughs> we're going to be Frank interviewing one of your classic students, and and he is none other. Uh, then world record holder, Olympic silver medalist, phenomenal, phenomenal guy on so many levels. He was beach patrol. What 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 he did for swimming, we're gonna discuss because it, it, it was out of the box kind of thing. Tim McKee from Brisbane, Australia. Brisbane, Brisbane, Australia. And uh, we're gonna see if we can bring Tim up. Tim, you down there? How's it going in the Gold Coast? Uh, if it was any better, I'd be guilty. Well, I'm, I'm beautiful gonna, here. I'm going to welcome both of you here with a frosty uh, white rose relay carnival mug. We'll take a little. I want you both to relax. There you go. Good. <laughs> Still coffee. I um, I had the opportunity with my good friend Joe Hour, who is producing this show tonight, along with his wife, Bess. You know, we traveled to the last Olympics together with Florida Swim Network. And Florida Swim Network has now morphed. It's become Swim Monkey TV. I'm seeing a lot of people saying hello to you, boys. And um, I, I wanted to start with Suburban Swim Club. And, and, and Tim, I know your father had a lot to do with building that place up and getting it started. And Frank, as one of the uh, one of the first coaches there, certainly the coach who brought it into the limelight. So, Tim, let's start with you. Tell me, how did in suburban Philadelphia the Suburban Swim Club get started? Uh, originally, it was a poolless uh, club. Uh, the swimmers and coaches would drive literally to different facilities. Bonner High School one day, an apartment complex on City Line Avenue, another. It was quite complicated, and my dad, <laughs> my dad saw. An availability if you could get some other parents in Florida bond to get a pool built. And that's exactly what happened uh, with the pool in Newtown Square. 
at the same time, he bought a house directly behind that pool. Um, and my first job when I moved in as an eight or nine year old was to literally cut a path through the woods between our house and Suburban Swim Club. And so you did that before you uh, hit the top of the 10 and under age group. And uh, then within a couple years, I believe um, your dad, who, who himself was part of a national championship NCAA, he was Ohio State, as I understand it. And they were ruling the roots back in his day, correct? They were. He was actually uh, on track to go to the Olympics. He was the uh, top breaststroke or second best breaststroke in the country. Uh, the year it was canceled because of the war. So to some extent, he probably lived out his uh, swimming uh, through his kids. Well, I know Big Al McKee, every coach, and even when I was a swimmer, everybody knew who Big Al was, and he was a great supporter of Mill Atlantic swimming, all of our, uh, all of our trips and things like that. And Frank, you came on board, maybe Tim was 11 or 12. Can you tell us how you came into the life of the McKee family and what you recollect of those early days? Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm allowed to really tell the whole story. but <laughs> The whole story. Um, this is a story time. Big, Big, Al, Big Al tried to get me to come to Suburban maybe six or seven times. And really the connection was the gynecologist that my wife and, and and Toddie McKee used to go to, she they're the ones that put it to, all together. Um, Al was a phenomenal swimming coach, but he was also a phenomenal insurance man. So he could sell you on anything. To make a little uh, more information on the club, the club was actually started by the late Peter Dalen. And it was a combination of all these summer club kids. Um, and then it just grew to a team, probably somewhere close to 300 kids. That's an amazing number. And you're talking about in the early to mid 1960s, this is all going on, correct? Yes, yes. I came I on board about 1963. 63, and I do remember Peter Dalen often talking to me about his Philadelphia days and how proud he was, and 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 that's where you know he actually got his start with Junior Swimmer in Swimming World. He he was one of the very first editors, correct? He he started Swimming World with Bob Kippeth up at Yale. Peter was a uh, a volunteer coach. And I'm only probably one of the only people who used to kid him about our, I used to remember that all he ever did was pick up towels. <laughs> he didn't quite like that recognition. Oh, so now you, you get the McKee family and, and there's, uh, you, you know, a, a whole boatload of them. And, and certainly uh, just because <laughs> Timmy was the only one that rode to the Olympic level, they were all very good swimmers. You know, I, I, I know I had, had a chance to race against a few of them and, and maybe mentor a couple others. But tell me, Frank, what when you first started working with Timmy, when he was in that 11, 12, 13-year-old age bracket, was there anything that you saw in him that let you know this guy might be something? The first thing I can remember about Tim was walking in one day for one of their practices, and he was swimming under – John McFadden, 
And Timmy walked over to him and said, John, tie me for a 50 backstroke. I think I can break the national age group record. I said, boy, this guy's got some guts. You know, little jerk, little 12-year-old probably. Without any warm-up or anything else, he got in, boom. It was better than the national age group record. That's how, you know, the way he approached things. When I became fortunate enough to be able to have him sort of as a senior swimmer, some things like that occurred. Um, I don't think I've seen Tim's probably in four years. And in his later years, now Timmy was there. I mean, we got a thousand stories. Um, he came late for practice at the John DuPont pool. And you don't walk in late to practice. And I was in a very good mood that day. <laughs> the Brown Lane. This yeah. is the Brown Lane story. Now, now, now let's set it up. The, the, the John DuPont pool was Foxcatcher Farm, correct? I mean, you're, you're yes. talking about a multi-million dollar pool that a guy just built for himself out on his ranch. I mean, basically, he was one of the richest guys in the country. And I know because you invited the Wilmington Aquatic Club. I got to go up there on occasion. And I remember that beautiful mural he had. It was brought in from Italy and all this. And, and he painted the pentathlete because he was trying to make... And he put his head on the top of the best athlete on every one. But this is a 50-meter pool that you worked out so that the suburban kids or Foxcatcher Farms kids. So now McKee's coming in a little late, and you're in a good mood. Tell us about this. It's beautiful. beautiful. He's late, and I've got a group of kids in the outside lane doing a 3,000 for time. And he says, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. We probably was being chased up a tree by the uh, German shepherd. I said, I don't, want, I don't want to hear any of that crap. Get over in that lane. They're going to 3,000. And I don't want to see you go easy at all. So he walked over to the lane. It was lane six. And as he walked over, I pulled my stopwatch out of my pocket, sort of hit it in my hand. When he dove in, I started it. And I kept watching. This is ridiculous. He was... He was out faster in the first 1,500 than the national cut for the mile. <laughs> and he negative split it. <laughs> and typical Timmy jumps out of the water and he runs over to me and he says, do you know how fast I went? I said, get the hell in the lane and do what you're supposed to do workout-wise. <laughs> I don't think that I told Tim that until we were in Omaha last time. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. Tim, do you remember any of that? Or how about a, a story I, from I, practice? I, I remember all of it. Now, what you have to remember here is there were probably 35 people in that lane. Right. I think they, I think I had missed a set and you had cutoffs. And if you didn't make the cutoff time on the set, uh, you got in the brown lane. So I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't there for the set. So I qualified for the brown lane. I, I do remember swimming that, but it was circle swimming. So basically, I was like in a river going downstream. As long as I stayed, you know, to to the right of the uh, of the black line on the bottom, there was only one time I had a problem. I was swimming into the wall as Steve Winans was swimming out, pushing off the wall, and we crashed right in the middle. <laughs> and I sagged to the bottom, and I I could hear Frank even through all the water. Yelling at Steve, pick him up, pick him up. 
And Steve <laughs> reaches down, picks me up off the bottom, and throws me back into the circle. Oh boy. Well, well, those years, you know, when when you were in the mid '60s and coming along, and Suburban Swim Club was really building itself a name. Of course, you know, we were about 20 miles away down in Wilmington, and so I was privy to watch you. I, I was a little bit behind you. I, I I know that when I was in middle school and, and early high school years, you know, you were the guy. I mean, you you swam in the 68 Olympic trials, Tim, and I, and I looked up those results. I know you swam in the 100 back. Frank, what do you remember about the 68 Olympic trials? Because you had some some kids looking at the team. And, and the that's the one I had to go to the police station, is it? Yes, it was. <laughs> I knew that was coming up. <laughs> I didn't ask the question. Well, All I know is your brother Mark said, I, I thought you were going to kill him. Uh, <laughs> Timmy uh, always... He always kept you on your toes. No, um, I, he was a smart. He was. What? What say you, Tim? What happened there? Oh, that's a long story. But um, I was fifteen. I, fifteenth was the best I got in the four hundred IM. But it was my first trip ever, ever, other than like dual meets or age or mid Atlantic's, and uh, and I cut loose a little bit. I might have been some drinking involved. I. Ended up being on the street with a guy, Dermot Quinn, sounds familiar. He was 21-year-old from Princeton, and we got into a little altercation and got invited down to the police station uh, where I guess they called they called back to find out whoever they could, and they found Bill Lipman. And Bill, <laughs> they, they found Bill before they found you, Frank. And, and uh, now, now tell I, Bill Lipman at the time, he was the head of the AAU officials, correct? He was a female. He was on the FINA committee. Yes, <laughs> the way wow. I remember it. But anyhow, he was he was driving us back to where we were staying, and we passed Frank, who was coming the opposite direction. And I'll never forget the look on his face. He always used to drive with one arm up on the roof of the car, and his window was open. But I saw a scowl on his face that I'll never forget. Okay, well, the, now that the, Tim, that was the night of a lot of celebration. Because that night was also the night that Phil Long made the Olympic team in the two breast. Yep. And Carl Roby made the, the team in the two fly. Yep. So I had celebrated. <laughs> and those were two great suburban swimmers that went on to, to, to give us in, in many levels of life. Carl, RIP. I mean, I know he was. He was highly respected down here in Florida. But 68, okay, you went to the trials, and that was your first big meet. And, and I looked at those results, Tim, because you were in a heat in the morning with Charlie Hickox, who ended up winning the silver medal that year, and, and another buddy of mine from NC State, Jimmy Shalistet. But you only went 104.35 in your 100 back. And I got a question for you. You swam from 68 to 72, and then 72 to 76, arguably – and Frank, chime in on this. Arguably, the eight years with the greatest time drops for USA swimming men, as I look at it. Now, I, I don't have any scientific data, but I know uh, what, when when you swam again, Tim, in 1972 Olympic trials, a lot had changed. And Frank, as I recall, there was no 200 IM that year because my buddy and teammates. Um, oh no, that was 76. 72 was the Munich Olympic trials. Was was Portage Park 
in Chicago. And, and Quinn, uh, help me with my friend. Quinn gave me some results here. Uh, Tim, you were second to Gary Hall on those trials, 432.86, and Gary was 430.81. Second in the 2IM, also to Gary by about four tenths, 209.76 you went. I look at your 100 back, you know, and, and, uh, and 200 back, certainly they dropped down. But tell me a little bit about what happened between 68 and 72 before we start getting into 76. Well, I grew a few inches. <laughs> Um, I got, I got a lot more experience swimming at the national level. Uh, I kept on working hard and, uh, I kept on improving. And when did you become a Gator? Well, when I finished at Malvern prep. Now that, that, that's a good story. You, uh, Phil Long and Carl Redwood were the first two Olympians in 68 out of suburban. My brother, Mark, that same year was alternate to the Olympic team. He had scored enough points that they were going to bring him on. If anybody got sick, he would have gone. Again, another way my dad would have vicariously finished his career through us. But uh, 72, going into 72, um, I realized that I had to get out of Gainesville, Florida, the University of Florida. I had never, I was a freshman down there. I'd never been through a spring quarter, but I understand if a professor wanted to have a good attendance, he should have held it at the beach about an hour away, Crescent Beach. So I figured it's, it's not a place to get serious. At the NCAAs that year, I think six was the best I could muster. So I decided I was going to drop out of school, get back to Philadelphia and, and train and try to become a contender. Now on the way out of town, I had a new girlfriend and I called her up. I said, hey, Debbie, um, you know, I'm going back to Philadelphia tomorrow. I'd love to see you. And she said, well, Tim, I'm not feeling real good. I, I think I got something. And I said, Deb, if you got it, I want it. Well, she gave me mononucleosis. <laughs> <laughs> so I got back to Philadelphia and I didn't feel real good. That's, that's normally after a couple of days off. The next day, same thing. The next day, the same thing. I went and got a blood test. Mono laid me up for a month or better. Um, it's, it's only couple of months to Olympic trials. And I was in a position where I literally couldn't train. And when I did come back to DuPont's, sometimes it was 10 or 15 minutes before I'd have to get out. I should have done a commercial for Exergenie because that's the one thing I could do on the side of the pool uh, to you know keep muscles built up. <laughs> Anyhow, two weeks before the Olympic trials, we had the Mid-Atlantics. And I don't believe I swam fast enough in any event to even qualify to go to the Olympic trials, but I was pre-qualified from the year before. So two weeks later, I go and I have the best meet of my life by far. I and can't really understand it, but somebody up there was looking after me. Well, your brother Kevin wants to know if meditation helped you during those years. And and uh, I know we were doing a lot of that with Maxon. Yeah, and, and, and before you get to that answer, let, let, let me throw a couple things out there because that's 72 Olympic trials was still the last time men and women were separate, correct, Frank? You had the men in Portage Park and, and the women uh, were up in New York, maybe. But but when you made the team and then you went to Munich, and of course that was the Mark Spitz years and all that, and that was, and then it was the terrorism. So, so much got lost that your incredible 400-meter 400, 400 individual medley race, when I remember – you, you know, you racing 
against Gunnar Larson, who, um, as a matter of fact, our friend Joe, we, we're, we're going to take two minutes so that those who don't remember, just watch a little piece. Thanks to our friends Bruce Weigo and the International Swimming Hall of Fame. We're going to watch it. There's your guy. Okay, we're gonna, just give us two minutes and uh, go ahead, Joe. Run that clip. Let's see so everybody knows what we're talking about. This is Gunnar. Okay, and there's the lineup. Those are the, those are the, there you are right next to Gary Hall. You're over in lane seven near the bottom of the pool. And here you are. Look at the lead you got, McKee. How can you not win a 400 IM with a lead like that? That's Woo. Gary Hall in the lead. That's Gary Hall. Oh, okay, good. I feel better than that. Woo. Okay, so Gary Hall touches first, 206.3. And this is you right next to him in lane seven, correct? Yes. Your breaststroke was pretty strong, pretty strong. Do you remember any of your splits? Do you know what you did, or do you, Frank? I no, remember. No, I remember. That's me taking over. 50, now you got the lead. The last 50, Tim McKee takes a look to the left side. Never <laughs> took a breath on the left side in his life. He wanted to see how far ahead he was. <laughs> was that right off the wall, Tim, or halfway down? Right about there. Right about there. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. And so then as you come to the wall, see if you see the finish. If you're watching, boom. I mean, to me, by the eye, you can't call that. And then by the electronic timer. There, and there's Gooner. He's jumping up and down, and he's talking about it now. He, and then they'll show the results here. They, they took eight or nine minutes. I was watching on my home in Fawn Road. And, and, and Jim McKay put these two guys next to each other, and they had the camera from ABCY World on you. And it was like, we don't know who won. Look at those times. 0 0.98, 0 0.9, 31.98, both lane seven and lane four. So, And you had raised Schooner Warner before. And so, so now we've got all this newfangled electronics in 1972, right? And and then there you are. So far, and, and then it's a tie, right? It's a tie by the rules of today's standard. Today. But unfortunately, what came up next was the statisticians and the guys from FINA and whoever was running. Maybe it was Bill Lippman. He didn't like that fact that you had in 68. I don't know. But they decided that the two one thousandths of a center of, of a second, two one thousandths, two one thousandths of a second, were going to thickness the thickness of your of your your fingernail exactly, or the length between lane seven and lane four. So uh, the, the reality was, for those that don't remember, FINA changed the rule at their very next meeting. I mean, they they said no, we can't have this. It's absolutely unfair. And I know to this day, USA Swimming has gone back and knocked on the door much in the way they have for the 76 girls for, you know, hey, how about some of the East Germans? You know, can we get a medal? Can we get a medal? I know your brother Kevin's been a big advocate for you, and I think it would have meant more to your father than anybody. But in 1972, they decided, Tim, to give you the silver medal. How did you handle it that day, that week, and over the next two years? What happened next? Oh, well. First thing I remember is the interview on, on television with Gunnar and I, and um, and he spoke first, and then they put the microphone in my face, and I came up with some bubble bubble bubble, and uh, and when I got back to Philadelphia, bank president who had seen it called me up, 
and offer me a job on the spot. <laughs> he wow. liked he liked the way I handled myself in the face of what many called adversity. I myself felt lucky I was there because, like I said, I was coming off mono. I can't even explain it. Uh, and and so after the Olympic Games, did you go back to Florida? Frank? What do you have to say on that? You you were right there. You were in Munich. In Munich. I think what happened after the presentation of the medal, wasn't that when Mark won his seventh gold medal? It, I believe it would have been <laughs> the same day, yes. And where did you see, where did you watch that race from, Tim? All right, I got I to gotta set this up. When I got to, when I first time any of the Olympic swimmers got in the pool in Munich, um, I was pretty excited to be there, and I'm, I'm not feeling too bad in the water. And I'm on the wall, and there's probably a dozen other swimmers right there. And I said, you know what? If I do well here, I'm going to throw one and a half off that 10-meter tower. <laughs> I'd never done it before. But anyhow, it's the last day of the swimming. I was finished. I was in the stands with the rest of the American team. And one of the girls, I don't remember who, she leans over and she goes, hey, Tim, how about that one and a half? And I go, oh, come on. You're not going to hold me to that. And she goes, yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> we all heard it. And I said, well, I don't have a suit. And this fast, somebody pops a suit out of their pocket and throws it at my chest. Now, these are the paper suits you could, you could fold up and put in a matchbox. Anyhow, I'm out of excuses. So I disappear. And a few minutes later, I'm walking across the pool deck. Now, most dives are on the, on the swimming venue. And the pool is separate. The diving pool. So anyhow, I take the glass elevator shaft up to the up to the top, and uh, they're announcing the 100, 100 meter freestyle. And I said, "Well, I'd like to see this because everybody was cheering for Jerry Heinrich." <laughs> 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 uh, Mark was a character, but he wasn't well liked by everybody. Anyhow, enough enough on that for now. We have to we'd have to have a five hour broadcast to get into that. But uh, anyhow, so I watched the 100 meter free from up there and I watched the award ceremonies from up there. And I don't know if you remember, but they used to hoist the flags up on uh, on horizontal um, on horizontal poles. Yeah. And and I'm watching the American flags for Jerry and Mark. And I look in between. I see a red light. And I go, what is that? And I look a little carefully. I go, oh, hell, that's the camera that's filming the flags going up and it's pointed right at me. <laughs> So, so I went down on my face on the platform and waited until those flags went down. Then I watched the parade as the, as, as the three paraded around the pool. And as, as the crowd quieted down, I heard from down at the bottom of the tower, Alice Kempthorne. She had the worst seat in the house, <laughs> literally, literally behind the diving well. But she's uh, yelling up to me. She's yelling up, hey, Tim. And I'm going, I look over the side. And I go, oh, hi, Alice. And, she, and she's pointing to the bottom of the tower. And I looked down the glass shaft and I didn't see anything. I looked back at her again. She points there again. I look over and I see the elevator's coming up. And I realize this will be security. So it's now yeah. or never. Now or never. Now I walk out to the end. There's no spray. There's no spray on the water surface. So all I could see is the bottom of the pool, which is 20 feet below that. And I take a little bit of spit in my mouth. I go, and I literally had to go before it hit the water. Well, it wouldn't have been there. It wasn't there when I got there anyway. And... <laughs> And I made the dive. I was a little bit over on the dive. Um, and my arms, when I hit, they went backwards. <laughs> and as I was decelerating underwater, 
wondering if my shoulders were still attached. My arms were still attached to my shoulder. I, I arched my back and started to swim the surface, shook my shoulders a few times. That's yeah, all there. So I swim over the side of the pool, and here's Don Gamble with a big old towel, throws it over my head, rushes me under the under the bleachers and out the out some door on the on the uh, warm up pool deck. <laughs> uh, and I look I look back, and security was still on their way up in the elevator. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Tim. And you know what? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sure, Kobe Billingsley and Dick Kimball both saw the dive and gave me five and a half and sixes, respectively. <laughs> Olympic diving coaches. And, and you know what? That's the one thing about you, McKee, that, that a lot of people, no matter where they met you. I mean, I read a story from 10 years ago on the Internet, and, and there were comments. A guy five years later said, hey, I met this guy in Australia, and he was the nicest guy. And but people always said McKee, he listen, he has a different drummer in his head. He's he's a, he's out there and 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 those years from seventy two to seventy six. Now, as I recall, because this is when I was coming along for Matson, and I had I had some some great rivalries with lots of suburban swimmers. Charlie Kennedy, who became this is a coach. Charlie, unbelievable, I am or came along and really has done everything for suburban. But my my point was. We thought you would retire, okay? We, we were certain that we didn't have to face you again because Bob Matson and Wilmington Aquatic Club had Ralph Barrick, Steve Gregg, Schaefer Henry, a lot of great IM swimmers, Barry Morrison, but not me. I would sneak in maybe seventh or eighth at mids in the four IM, but I was not good. But you were our hero. And then we would have been like, okay, well, Tim's done. And, as I, and then all of a sudden, about two years before the 76 games, you started showing up a little bit. But you had some bad habits, and let's face it, you talked to me at that point because you'd taken up smoking cigarettes. And you said, Sid, smoking cigarettes is part of my training, and I'm on two packs a day. We get about six months out. I'll cut back to one pack, and then by the time I get the trials, I'll go two weeks cold turkey. It'll be like coming down from altitude. Do you remember that kind of logic going through your head? I do. I it, do. Didn't, it, didn't start, it didn't start that late in my career. <laughs> I pretty much smoked cigarettes as from a freshman in high school. And and my most memorable was at the West Point Thayer Hotel was a training camp for the uh, for the for the Olympic Games before we went to um Munich. And I got bunked in with um Dave Edgar, who was from Tennessee. Now, that's an arch rival for a Florida swimmer, but I guess they figured we're from the same conference. We got things in common. Anyhow, I never smoked in front of Dave, but he turned me in anyway. He must have smelled it on my on my clothes. And and I remember confronting Peter Dalen and Don Gamble in their room at the hotel there. And they asked me about it. And I said, would these guys really understand my altitude training theory? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I was blown away. And I will never your room was on fire. What's that? They thought your room was on fire. Uh, that was that was a different party at the hotel there. That was NCAA's. Oh, no. oh, that's another that's another story, but Curtis Hayden would remember. He was dressed up like underdog that night. Well, when I swam at NC State, Tim, and you were swimming for Florida your senior year, we were in Cleveland. And the NCAA, Frank, had the wise idea that Cleveland, you know, they had uh, the, the Cleveland State, beautiful new pool. And, and the people of Cleveland wanted us to feel welcome. So the last night they threw a keg party.
for us in the Holiday Inn for just the athletes. Now, it was 18 to drink in Ohio back then, so it was no big deal. It was the 70s. You know, it was a lot. And, and there were two kegs of beer. One barely got touched. And everybody's, we're getting out of here. We don't want to sit in this, you know, Holiday Inn. You know, we want to go out. We want to see what, you know, the, the keg and quarter ends. Like, what about, you know? But, Tim, do you remember we carried that keg to the elevator, and we had so many people following you to get on it. By the time it went up, it got stuck. It was stuck for a good 20 minutes in that hotel. And, and you were classic, but more so than that, what I want to get at with you, McKee, is your ability to let stuff just roll off your back like a duck. Okay, there were a lot of things. I remember swimming in the 75 Concord Nationals, long course, and a good friend of ours, Frank, you might remember this situation. We had a guy, uh, we, Tony Bartle, Frank Lichtner, and I were really close in the 400 free at mids. We finished within three or four tenths, all three of us. So we were all seated in lane seven, lane seven, lane seven, last three heats of the pyramid at Nationals. And so Frank Lichtner's Suit broke. Tony had just broken the 400 free record, and Lickner's giving him crap, saying, I'm going to beat your record. And then his suit broke, and I had just finished. Tony was going third because Tony had won mints. So I, I jump out, put a towel around me, and give my suit to Lickner, who doesn't have a towel. He changed. He gets in, and the suit breaks two records. But there was a that was only nationals. There was a bigger suit tie, and this used to happen a lot with those paper suits that I'm kind of remembering that a friend of yours, speaking of Tony Bartle, Tim, uh, I believe, Tony, can you tell this story? Can you tell us what's going on? What happened? Yeah. Sure, how you doing, Timmy? Good. Hi, Frank. Hey, yeah, I, can absolutely, I can absolutely tell you the story. I was fortunate enough to room with Timmy at uh, the 76 trials. And uh, the night before, um, Timmy swam the 400 IM. He came into the room. I was wondering where he was because I couldn't believe he was out as late as he was. And he finally came in at about midnight, grabbed a couple things off the counter and said, I'll see you in the morning and turned around and left. And I was blown away. The very next day he's up, he qualifies for the finals of the uh, 400 IM. And that night I'm standing behind this block watching the race and they called them to the block. Timmy grabs both pieces of the, the string for his suit, pulls them, and it snaps. <laughs> he says, wait a minute, to the starter. He puts the towel around himself, drops that suit. Gil Westwall throws him another. He puts it on, ties it. And at this point in my mind, I'm thinking anybody else would be eighth in this race. But uh, but not Timmy. Timmy, I had the you know the the utmost admiration for uh, the talent and the uh, the confidence level that he had is just was just something else. But yeah, I'll never forget that. Uh, it was like it was a walk in the park for him. And I think most people, including myself, would have probably had a little bit more of a freak out going on than he did. So Tony, you you trained with Tim, and you got like he was a mentor to us. You know, we were a couple years behind him, but. What 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 else like did you note about him that was different than anybody else? Well, I, and Frank could probably speak to this a little more than I could, but one of the things I noticed about Timmy was there was a time during '76 where he would come to practice, and we would always start with a standard 844 warm up, and then we'd do another set. But there was always one set that I noticed Timmy would would really 
put an effort in, like a, a supreme effort. Um, and it wasn't a particular set. It was just one he chose to challenge himself and, uh, and go after a little bit more than maybe he did in the others. And, uh, you know, when you, when you got a guy with the talent Timmy had, watching him work out at those times, I mean, there were times where he didn't work out very hard at all, but it seemed like there was going to be one during the workout where you knew he was going to do something that made everybody kind of stand up and watch a little bit. What's your recollection of that, Timmy? That's crap. I, I gave it everything I had on every set, every day. You, Tony, you were there. Have you ever known uh, yeah. anybody who? Have you ever known anybody who threw up in the gutter between sets more than I did? <laughs> I ever? Knew quite a few in college. Yeah, I do. Quite a few. Yeah. 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 That was I, that was me working hard. Yeah, might have been a little right. that might have been a little bit of that tar and nicotine coming out, but <laughs> yeah, I do remember you disappearing for a couple of weeks, going up into the mountains and then coming back. I think, yeah. Um, you're talking about '75, yeah. Said you wanted to know what happened between '72 and '76. I I actually retired from swimming. The the program at the University of Florida fell apart for a variety of reasons. Um, but anyhow, I decided if I if I walk away now, maybe in the future. I could come back and and you know give it a go again, so I took a, I took some time off, and it gave me time to hitchhike around the country. Um, and and one of the things that I did, you you said Concord was seventy five. Um, I'm I'm remembering one of these no, times no, no. I said, you're right, seventy four. My bad, seventy four. Yeah. Seventy five was Kansas City. Go ahead. Right. All right, because I was hitchhiking across the country. I couldn't remember whether it's Kansas City or. Lincoln, Nebraska, somewhere in the Midwest, but I knew the Nationals were going on locally, and I got myself there, and I got to see the 400 IM, and they were swimming 430 still, and this is three years after the Olympics, where Gary Hall set the world record, uh, well, in the pre in the Olympic trials at 430, and I and I said, well, you know what? They're not swimming any faster than I did three years ago. Maybe, and I, I went under the bleachers by myself, and I sat there for half an hour dissecting the race, you know, I said, look, if you, if you train real hard, if you stay healthy, how fast can you swim this race? And after half an hour, I said, I put my splits together and I said, I think I'd go 424, which is six seconds under the world record. And I said, I think that might be enough to get the gold. And so I decided to give it a go. But my, I wasn't really on board with it here. And, and Frank might remember for that fall, I was, I, didn't have a job. I wasn't in school. The only constructive thing I was supposed to be doing was swimming. And I was making bluegrass night at the Bryn Mawr Beef and Ale, more important than getting to work out in the morning. And I'd, I'd, I'd come to one workout and I'd miss two and I'd get to two and miss two. And, and it was finally on December 28th, I finally sat myself down. I said, Tim, what the hell are you doing? You know, what's it going to take to motivate you? And I started thinking through my life and I said, well, Last time I got really fired up about anything, I was fighting with my parents to get the car to go see my girlfriend in Wilmington, Valerie. And I said, oh, Tim, Valerie. We have Valerie. Tim, you, you got to <laughs> fall in love with one of the girls that goes to the pool every day. That, that way you'll get there. Because when I got there, I worked hard. I just wouldn't get there enough. And there were only two. Well, you used to get there late. Now, <laughs> you have to tell these guys why you came in late. After you had, had, had gotten to the farm, Probably a half hour before practice. <laughs> you and you and Mr. DuPont used to play a little game. You're talking about with Ingo? Yeah. The German Shepherd? 
Yeah. John used to, John had a, a dog that was trained in Germany, a German Shepherd trained in Germany. Go figure. Um, but this dog was trained for protection, and he only answered the German commands. And John would say, "Hey Tim, going down, going down the the farm there to that tree, and um, and I'm gonna release the dog." And I go, "Wait, wait, wait! No, you wait till I climb the tree." So anyhow, I get under the tree. He sell, he yells something to the dog, and the dog. I, I jump up like this and grab a branch, and the dog's already there. Oh, <laughs> already, you know, I'm lifting my butt up, trying to keep keep it out of the dog's mouth. <laughs> Is that what he you're referring to, Frank? To, he would come into practice, jacket ripped, pant legs ripped. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? I lost the dog again. <laughs> well, well, there's a lot. That was our answer to sprint training. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I knew uh, we heard a lot of stories from Foxcatcher Farms, and and uh, but but none more so than in uh, some of the things Timmy was doing. And Timmy, as I understand it, you know, you 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 sat there at Kansas City in 1975, and and we had we had a little social at the end of the last night for the athletes, and and I I remember talking to you that night, and you said, yeah. Yeah, you were giving me, I don't think you told me the 424, but you said, I can definitely break the world record and make this team next year as you're sucking on a marble. And I said, listen, uh, the key, there's no way in hell you're going to make the Olympic team next year. You know, times are moving on and you're not. And then over the next course of six to eight months, and this is the beauty of Tim McKee for any of you youngsters out there. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat, but believe in yourself, believe in yourself, believe in yourself, because this guy had more confidence, and Tony, back me up here, more confidence, he would walk, I remember Timmy, Jim Whalen, God rest his soul, we swam uh, the, the uh, pageant swim one year, and we're walking back, and as we're coming by one of the beaches there where, you know, at, at the time in 1970s, you know, gay rights weren't that big and, and, and people were, you know, still Atlantic City had a thing where they had a gay beach. And, and for a guy like me, we didn't know much about that. Well, you jacked up your Speedo and you started swinging and, hey, boys, come on. And, and like a couple guys come over and, and now all of a sudden you're making friends with these guys. I mean, wherever you went, you were made, you were so confident in your own role. And, and for us, right, Bartle, what, what do you got about Timmy's confidence you can share with us? Well, I, I think I was mentioning it earlier, but I would say that not just Timmy, but most of the great swimmers I've met, you know, there's a ton of, there's a ton of great talented athletes out there, no matter what sport. But for some reason, the same people seem to be the ones that win all the time. Uh, a lot of people make a lot of finals and a lot, of, you know, but it's very hard to win and win on a consistent basis. And Timmy's a perfect example of uh, somebody who has the ultimate talent with, with just a, an enormous amount of self-confidence, which as you mentioned, if there's any, any of the youngsters out there watching, that is the most important thing. I used to tell some of the kids, you know, my son's teams, when we coached my son's teams that, you know, you can't not think you're going to – you have to think you're going to win before you get out there on the field where uh, you have no chance. And Timmy was probably as confident a guy as I've ever met um, and certainly talented. I mean, you know, there's no there's no no exception for the fact they have to have talent. But uh, but the one that's – you know, the guys win all the time are the ones that are separated 
by the you fact that you have tremendous self-ability. And I always thought I just worked harder than everybody else. <laughs> yeah, that's bullshit. That's Frank, what do you say? How much was talent? How much was hard work with McKee? What do, what do you think in in the long run? What 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 served him better? Wait, let's make sure we get you off mute. And um, hold on before you start talking, Frank. Hold on. And then tell us how much was talent, how much was hard work, and how much was just being the key. Go ahead, Frank. The, the secret to the whole thing is having a stable of guys that won't let anybody back off. Timmy wouldn't let anybody swim an easy set. Tony was brutal on people. You know, everybody in that program, I mean, we, we it's like 25, 30 guys going to nationals. And, you know, in 76, we had Brenda Borg, who, who actually beat Cornelia Ender, the East German girl, in, in December up in Canada. Right. I mean, it was just phenomenal swimming. But it that's what you saw day in and day out. I mean, I, I hate to say it, that anybody could have gone in and coached those people. Because they're so motivated. Oh, I, I don't. I take exception to that, Frank. Because Susie Andrews yeah. posted confidence in your coach as well. You did an unbelievable job coaching those guys. But go ahead, Frank. I want to hear more about that because certainly it, it was a lot easier for me if I just said I'll do everything Matson says and that'll make me good. And then, then racers. And then exactly. So when you were coaching guys like Tony and guys like Timmy. You know, you came to the table with some some pretty big stuff too. I mean, I can remember some of those practices up at Dupont. Um, I never thought that they, I went twenty four thousand one day because I heard Dick Schulberg had done that. It was the most boring workout I've ever given in my life. I don't know about the kids, but I I hated. I could only go down to the center of Newtown Square and get coffee twice. Well, I'm sure they hated it, too. But let, let's fast forward then where we get out of trials at Long Beach, which is unbelievable. As Timmy said, you know, Gary Hall set the world record, and Tim was right behind him. I, I, was, I was blown away. But at those same Olympic trials, Frank, there was one person on your team who was the closest to making the Olympics in terms of how many tenths or hundredths of a second. And that's the guy in the in the bottom left corner, Tony Bartlett, the 200 butterfly. And the word on the street was, you know, you were coaching Tony just like he was such a great 400 freestyler, 200, especially 1500. But we had Bobby Hackett, we had Brian Goodell, Paul Hartloff. There were so many great ones, Casey Converse, and then and so you said, well, let's throw in the 200 butterfly, Tony in front. You guys got that at the last minute, but. You just barely missed the Olympic team by less than a tenth of a second, as I remember, Bartle. Is that correct? Well, I think in 76, I think I missed it by eight tenths. And I think in uh, 1980, in the 400 free, I missed it by 11 one hundredths, probably. But, but yeah. that, that 200 butterfly in 76, Frank, when he came off that, that, that turn, he, I, I know – I remember because you had your teammate Greg Yagenberg in there too, Yako – and, and you were way behind at the 100 and maybe in seventh place with a 50 to go. But suburban guys were usually known to finish their races, right? And, and, and so that trials was impressive for suburban. Very impressive, Frank. And you made the there's team. A story, there's go a ahead. story on that, and I think Tony has heard this one 
that we had two guys in the finals of the 200 fly. So what are the odds? I've got to have, you know, one of them was a world champion, you know, two years before. Tony was and, and Greg had gone one, two in the nationals. I'm going to have at least one guy make the, the team and maybe two of them. Uh, neither of them made it. And I can remember, I can't remember who the assistant was at the time. I said, you drive everyone back to the hotel. I'm walking back. Now, walking back was probably about seven miles. And I was, I was very, very distraught. And I, yeah, I remember, I, I remember Frank walking back. I, and I've heard the story before. I got yeah, out that was a rich. tough time. Tough time for Greg as well. Greg had, was uh, missed breaking Mark Spitz's world record the summer before by three one hundredths of a second. I think he went two double oh seven three, and Spitz was two double oh seven. And uh, and then Greg got mono as well. I mean, Greg got yeah. mono at the beginning of that year, and I don't think he ever quite recovered. So I think Greg, uh, I, I think Greg cursed himself when he bought that personalized plate that said Olympian. <laughs> well, that's a very good point, Tim. Because if you're going to be that cocky, you better back it up. Now, oh, yeah. he did do okay with his chip weights, right? I think he did okay. The suburban <laughs> Swim Club would have won the 400 medley relay probably three times when we had Timmy and and uh, Stu Isaac, Greg, yeah. and Tony. If we could have swum the butterfly leg first. <laughs> he would go, he would go the worst a half a second faster in in a flat flat race. Oh my gosh. So so then we finally get to Montreal, okay? And McKee goes his 424 and, and unbelievable the swim. Of 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 uh, USA, the men we 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 won every thing. And you know what? In in seventy two, there were only two events that did not get a world record, and that I was Roland Mathis in in the hundred back, right? In in seventy two, and then the uh, the other one uh, I think was Larson's four hundred IM who won, right? So you guys, but other than then we get to seventy six, and every world record gets breaking broken except for for a uh, hundred flop. And that was Matt Vogel, right? And and but but Timmy broke the world record with the time he predicted in Kansas City, and it was just at Rod Strachan, one of the great swimmers out of USC. American led the way. There were so many one, two, three sweeps. I don't think Gary got third in that when you guys went one, two. But you know, watching that games, Tim, what was it like in 1976 Montreal? What can you tell us about that event? Um. Well, like I said, I was coming off the the Olympic or I'm sorry, the American Nationals were swam long course that year in preparation of getting everybody ready to swim long course at the trials and the games. And um and at the time their world record was still Gary Hall's four thirty. And I went four twenty-eight and got beat by three Hungarians. <laughs> three Hungarians. Now the the Czechoslovakia, I mean, the, the Eastern Slavic countries had never produced an IMR ever. And here's three of them coming one, two, three in the American Nationals. Where'd that come from? Now, 
I only I can only guess. I can only guess, but there's no drug testing in the American Nationals. Well, one of the guys is for real. Um, Andres Hargitay got that medal that you just mentioned. Where you won one, two, he got the uh, the other. But the other two guys were like 15 and 20 seconds off what they had done a few months before that. And like I say, I have no proof. I'm only guessing. It's only my theory. Yeah, that's it. It's a theory. Well, Tim, it's a lot more than your theory. Certainly a lot of research has been done. And, and you know, the unbelievable film that came out in 2016 before the trials about the 76 girls and, and the, the 400 relay team, the, the, the gold. Uh, I just, I, I, I felt for all you. And we had a chance to watch it. Frank was there. We all went in Omaha and watched it together. And, and it's just such a travesty. You know, they've got this thing on now with, the ESPN 30 for 30 on, on, on Lance Armstrong and, and, you know, and, and trying to paint him. I, I, I guess, you know, you guys have lived it, you know, certainly the, 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 the drug issue, we don't think of as much in the men's racing, but obviously it was. And uh, the East German men, I remember Roger Patel was one of the 200 flyers there, Tony, when, when, and those guys, the top six guys, in the Olympics, including my roommate from NC State, Steve Gregg, who broke the Olympic record in the morning, was seated first, then in Montreal, got second in a one, two, three sweep. Mike Bruner first, Billy Forrester third. They were all under the world record. So was yeah. fourth, fifth, and sixth. My colleague from Ecuador, my, my, my good friend from uh, Southern Illinois University, Jorge Delgado. Jorge Delgado, yeah. In sixth place, and he broke the world record. He, you know, yeah. unbelievable Olympics in 76. Yeah, it was a great group. Great group of flyers, particularly. Uh, those three guys were all terrific. I mean, all of them had won NCAA titles. All of them had won national championships. So, uh Terrific world championships. So, I mean, it was amazing that you had three guys that had all flipped around and won nationals and won different titles uh, along the way. Terrific group of guys. And, and that was the Mark Spitz world record that he set in Munich in 72. And, and, and Tony, like you're saying, you, you guys in trials that are all right there. But, Tim, as we're looking back into those days, the strength – of those challenges, the things that you learned through those tough times, like like you took a silver medal. I know silver medalists in the Olympics that took decades, decades to get over it. They were bitter, they couldn't handle it. But it seemed like to fall right off you like water off a duck's back. Like you're like, oh, okay, I got another silver, whatever. And 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 I know when you talked to me privately, you said it probably hurt my dad more than it hurt me. But tell me a little bit about how you handled that, breaking the world record, but getting another silver after coming back the way you did in 76. Go ahead, Timmy. Look, I, I swam what I thought I could do. I did the best that I could, and I, and I did exactly that. I never even heard of Rod Strachan. But honestly, <laughs> I, I never really followed swimming except the four years that I coached. Um, you had mentioned Swimming World Magazine. When I was an age grouper, I used to – I used to pick that up. I never read any of the articles. I used to flip to the back to the age group rankings. And I'd look at my events and I'd look to see whose names were in front of mine. And I never looked at anybody behind me, just who's in front. And at the time it was Duncan Scott. He's probably the best age group swimmer ever, ever. 
And I, I kept waiting to meet him when we got to the big time. And I was shocked that I never did. And I figured, oh, he must have been killed in a motorcycle accident or something. And like 35 years later, I get to meet him. And he just dropped out. He had done his thing. Well, I hadn't done my thing. There wasn't that many things I was good at, but I was pretty good at swimming. So I kept doing it for, I don't know if it's as long as I can, but if you remember back then, there were no sponsorships. There's no $100,000 for gold medal. Um, pretty much if you finished college and you were, you were having, having an excellent shot at making the Olympics, but it was a year off, you just got a job. Your career was done. Um, it wasn't until I was coaching that that opportunity started opening up for swimmers to swim after um, after the college career. Well, I, I do appreciate that, Tim. And, and certainly in these days, especially with the, the COVID and everybody talking about how the seniors this year did not get to go to NCAAs. They lost their senior year. They didn't get the extra year of eligibility that the NCAA gave the spring sports. So all the swimmers never got to finish that. And they likened a lot of that to the 1980 team that, that President Carter did not allow. Certainly a guy like Tony, you know, myself, I got to 78 and it was a choice. It was like, I'm not that close to the Olympics. No, I'm done with swimming. I'm going to go into pro marathon. But for you, Tony, for you, Timmy, you guys were at the uh, at the forefront. Timmy, you, you said, okay, I'm done. 76, I'm not going to make another comeback. But guys like Tony or my roommate Steve Gregg, who got the silver, he got a silver by a few hundred, a few tenths behind Bruner, and it was a great celebration. And I saw the difference. But he came back and wrote on his pool boy second is last, and he was all in. And then Carter pulls the pulls the rug out. Tony, Frank, you remember that time? It was a lot different than this year, but there are some similarities. What do you remember about 1980, Frank Keith? What can you tell us? The, uh, when they made the final decision, almost half of the guys we were training decided to stop training. It just wasn't worth it. They were training for the Olympic Games, for the trials. Um, you know, it, was, it, it broke their heart. And I can remember, you know, going to... Uh, uh, California, and they had the, the Nationals, and they were going to select an Olympic team. It was no Olympic team. They took kids to China. They took kids to Hawaii. And that was it. The difference is now, as you said, you know, there's there's money. There's sponsorship. Sucking it up for one more year. You know, they've got about 10 more days before they've got to really start cranking it up to be a year out from the trials. It's another meet. There may be, there may be 2,000 kids there. There's going to be 26 that make the team. Right on that. And when I look at those 76 games, I think there are only about 400 of us at trials. But, Tony, what do you remember? You were an All-American athlete. You had just missed the Olympic team by tenths, by hundreds, and 76. What was going through your mind? I remember they brought Ronald Reagan. He was this... He wasn't. He was a governor then. He was running for president. But you know, Irvine Nationals, and they all of a sudden started calling Olympic trials. It was after the Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. But Tony, what's your recollection? 
Yeah, well, I was uh, at that time, beginning of the year, I was uh, in my senior year at UCLA and I was swimming with Brian Goodell, who had an opportunity, you know, double gold medalist in 76 on Timmy's team, had an opportunity to win a couple of more events, uh, had a showdown with a Russian uh, swimmer that would have been the talk of the meet. I think he would have been one of the stars. And um, they learned early. I mean, we learned early on that it wasn't going to happen and that made it difficult. Um particularly since I kind of waited around. I mean, I was looking forward to, after four years of missing it, I was looking forward to another opportunity. But, um, you know, I think that um, the difference between today and, uh, and, and um, back then was, you know, there is money involved. People stick around for another year. There are a lot of people back then that was their opportunity and they didn't get another opportunity. And, uh, very sad. Very sad when that kind of uh, when the politics enter into uh, sports like they did. I think it was a mistake then, and uh, I think it's borne out over the years that most people will say it was a bad decision. There was an ironic situation for me in there. I was assistant coach at the University of Florida with Randy Reese, and uh, we had billeted before the the meet in Austin. I remember it used to be the biggest winter meet every year. Um, just after the Christmas break and over the Christmas break, we would bring the Russian national swim team to Gainesville. Um, my job was to set them up, billet them, uh, raise money to heat an outdoor pool. So we all had room to train together. Uh, there was a $14,000 tab right there. Um, but anyhow, we had a great exchange of sportsmanship and the whole purpose of it was to draw a line between politics and sports. And the two are different, and never should the twain meet. And and then um, after two years of that, yeah, Jimmy Carter announces his thing, and certainly the politics do have something to do with sports in a way that it was a huge, huge disappointment. Now, to me, I knew my commitment to University of Florida coaching was four years, and I was at the end of that. But for all the kids that we were training, and and I believe – Close to half of the men's team and a third of the women's team would have been from our club, Florida Aquatic Swim Team. And I cannot imagine how bad they must have felt. Now, a couple of them, David Larson, a few others, they went on. They trained for four more years, and they got they got to compete. But, again, it was a tainted, a tainted Olympics because the Russians didn't come to ours, just like we didn't go to theirs. Right. So, right. Yeah, and tough time. It was, very, it was very tough. And, 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 and actually, Tim, you know, I, I've gotten to know Vladimir Salnikov, and, and he is uh, he, he's a gentleman. He, he yeah. is. He's well respected. But he also would have loved to have that opportunity to race. Well when they were both young and in their primes and things were coming along. And, and I know that that'll be your dog. Right, Timmy? That's your yeah. dog. Oh, yeah. What Not kind my of dog. <laughs> but but the point is the point is that that if we let politics enter sport um and, and and you see it in so many different levels and now that we've got the shutdown and everybody lost all of the spring and now look we're losing all of the summer you know i i think there's lessons to be learned and, and before we sign off for the rest of the night and i, I don't want to rush us out of here because i'm going to give all three of you gentlemen a chance to Talk about anything you want before we, we we take off. But that fact that we're stuck in this COVID-19 kind of uh, the last three months have, have not existed for sports. You know, what advice might you give, Frank, to some of the youngsters out there 
You know, you, you think of the guys that faced this thing in 1980, or maybe there's there's been other, you know, opportunities where certainly the, the world wars have, have stopped the Olympics. But Frank, what would you, what advice would you give to the young people out there today? Here's my sales pitch. You just had three months off. You couldn't practice. Your body is healed. Now I'm going to kick your ass for the next 12. <laughs> so you're gonna, times are going to be phenomenally fast next year. I like you guys have come back to swim. <laughs> and, and we should note that you are still coaching. You, you, you retired from Yale, but you're still coaching with Jamie Platt at LaSalle. Tell us a little bit about that, Frank. I, I have basically retired about two weeks ago. Um, the virus is going to keep me off the deck, you know, milling around with a lot of people that I don't know. Um, it's been 62 years of, of a heck of a lot of fun dealing with the kind of people like you, uh, Jimmy Kimmel of swimming. Uh, <laughs> it's just an opportunity. The one thing I would like to finish off with is every one of the guys can look back at Middle Atlantic swimming as one of the big advantages that they had. You remember making the finals in the mids, you had to make national cup. So you had a lot of guys, whether they were from CJ's or PAC or Lancaster, Wilmington, Suburban, Vesper, wherever. You know, they were all pushing each other. You had great guys. I mean, you can, you know, a, a who's who in swimming. And I'm, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to be involved in it. And I'm more than happy that, that I was able to coach all you guys. Thank well, you. Amen, Frank. Thank you. Thank you, you Frank. Thank yeah, you're you an inspiration. You see, I see John R. Beatty. Oh, all part of living in a perfect world. That, that that's for you, Tim. I know. I know that John. I, I actually coach his nieces and nephews down here in Boca Raton. And uh, what what what's your recollection of the Beatty days? The Beatty days. They yeah. still go on. They still <laughs> they still go on. Whenever I'm in the states, I'm always making a trip down to Orlando. That's one good. of my one of my best buds ever and always. Well, I'm going to ask Tony first, and then we're going to come back to you because Tony, I remember racing you in those Middle Atlantic Championship meets that Frank's talking about, and the biggest thing for us coming up there anytime on uh, Gimbal Gym and and going in there to Sheer Pool on campus at U of that in every month, my, my first 200 free finals, I was between Tim Broderick and Tony Bartle. Now, Tony was my age, but Tim was like, he was a Stanford guy. And you know, he was also an Ocean City guy. We don't want to get yeah. into those kind of stories. But, but Tony, how about your uh, last bit of advice for some of the youngsters out there that might be following uh, this show this week? Well, you know, I, I think uh, what we talked about earlier with confidence in yourself, you know, certainly Timmy had that. Greg Yagenberg had that. I mean, that's a big part of being successful. Um, and and also, I, I would gear it more towards some of the ones that are a little bit older. And I would say, you know, take some of the younger ones under your wing. I was really fortunate. I think you and I were both really fortunate, not just to have 
Frank Keefe, Bob Matson, Don Sonia, George Breen, all within a 70-mile area of each other. I mean, we had some of the greatest coaches in the world within 70 miles of each other. But we also had a ton of great swimmers. And one of the things I remember from my time at Philadelphia Aquatic Club early with Don Sonia and then, of course, with Frank and all the guys at Suburban and Foxcatcher was the way the older guys would take you under your wing and, and kind of groom you and continue to instill the confidence in you. So I would say to those kids that are, you know, 13, 14, 15, make sure you're talking to the 8-year-olds, the 10-year-olds, Get them involved. Uh, make sure you recognize them when they do something uh, special. And, uh, you know, I think that was a big part of us growing up. I think that was really helpful. And I think that that bred some great swimming and some uh, some tremendous swimmers over the years in the Middle Atlantic area. That's that's great advice, Tony. Thank you for that. that that's awesome. And I see in, in some of the uh, notes, I see one from Huddy Walsh. Well, she's Huddy um, now, uh, her, her married name. Uh, she, she's, she was one who brought about our, our reunion maybe 15 or 20 years ago. It sounds like we need another one from Mill Atlantic, but also, um, you, you, you know what I see there for, for you, Timmy, before I'm going to hand it off to you. Um, you see Maureen Mortel, she's saying hi, Diane Schober. It's like, it's like a who's who of old Mill Atlantic swimmers, but Timmy, you know, you're going to be able to give some advice to some youngsters listening. And, and you being that guy who was always a little bit different. There are stories about you going and winning a race and not even warming up or doing this and doing that. But but in the end, I, I think the reality that, that you brought to this sport as a confident, believable, kind of off-the-wall guy that everybody wanted to be around, you know, that was contagious. And, and uh I'd like you to leave a, leave a message here for the youngsters before we sign off tonight. Yeah, sure. I'll make this real simple. Don't be me. Be better than me. <laughs> Don't use me as your role model. Listen to your coaches. They've got better <laughs> advice for you. I did what I did, but uh, in reality, swimming is something I did. It, it doesn't define me. It didn't make me who I am. It certainly helped me develop disciplines for the rest of my life. And you will too. But, um, you know, go with what, go with what is fun for you. Cause if it, if it ever stops being fun, there's probably not that much reason to do it. Amen. Nope. Amen. That's right. Now well I'm said, grateful. Jimmy. I'm grateful that I had people like my dad and you, Frank, in my life steering me because Lord knows I needed it. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm grateful for everything. I'm leading a blessed life. Certainly through swimming, I got to travel the world. I had, I had adventures I never would have had an opportunity to take without it. So I just say amen. And as far as this pandemic thing going around, move to Australia as soon as you can because we're over it. <laughs> Don't you have to marry an Australian woman to live there, Tim? Pardon? Say it again? I, I, I believe it's difficult for Americans to just move there. They have to marry an Australian, correct? Certainly it helps. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never would have gotten in without it. But, um, yeah, there are ways. Starts with money. Well, Tim, we want to we thank you for joining us all the way from Brisbane. There's there's your sister Karen. I, I've seen your brother Chris, your brother Kevin. Yep. It absolutely um, it is an honor for us to kick off our Swim Monkey Stories with Sid uh, program with the 
with a trio of, of suburban legends. And, and certainly, Timmy, what, what you have left the swimming world to me, and here's how I, I envision it. I was so moved by you in terms of your passion. And, and what, what I really liked more than anything was you didn't let crap get you down. You didn't let people saying you could not do this get you down. That what you did was despite the fact that you were a little bit shorter and maybe, you know, Tony says you're full of talent. I said, okay, Timmy had talent. Yeah, but come on. You know, you look at what's out there. And yet there, was a, there was a spree decor in the 70s and Tony had it. You know, certainly there were races that we all felt in the Mill Atlantic and, and at Nationals and in the, in the pride that we had in swimming USA. But I just want to thank all three of you. And, and my message to the youngsters out there before we sign off tonight, my message is understand that there are many different ways to succeed. But the one thing that you need is passion. And if you believe in yourself and you have the passion and you believe, we, we, that's good. Dan Harrigan, wasn't he your roommate in 76, Timmy? Dan says he's going to stop smoking. He was. <laughs> he was my roommate. Good. I'm going to have him on in a couple of weeks, and you can type into him. But I, I, I will tell you youngsters and you young coaches out there, because there's no one way to succeed. But without question, if you believe in yourself, you believe in your coach, believe in your program, and you just put your heart and your passion into it, anything is possible. So with that said, we're going to call this uh, a, a good evening, fellas, a good kickoff show. There's Jamie Barkman Brown, certainly one of the greats out of Philly. I've seen so many great names out of the Philadelphia area there. You know, besides those we've mentioned, you know, I, I, I see John Hogan and, and Barry Morrison and guys from my team. And I see a lot of your team, Bartle and, and McKee. And yep. I, I just want to thank you all for making this possible. And I want to remind you all that every Monday night, 7 p.m., we'll be right here on the Swim Monkey, Stories with Sid. Good luck, sir. Hey, and Sid, Sid, very brave Sid, of you. Very brave of you having your first show with us on. <laughs> Love See you guys. Fun. Love you guys. Take care. Thanks, Sid. Bye. Join us on the Swim Monkey. Swim. Swim Monkey. 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 Swim Monkey.